This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. Thank you. Um, While we're talking about King Charles III, um, I find it strangely comforting that it appears he sneaked away from Buckingham Palace when everybody was outside talking and pontificating about them being inside. He sneaked away to come home to Highgrove. and I, I, I do find that kind of, the fact he's then got to turn around and go back again to Windsor for the concert this afternoon uh, some might say I, I think he just forgot his toothbrush but anyway as I say I find it strangely comforting that our king on the, the day of his consecration really on the day of his crowning left all that splendour and came back Right, his home's a bit more splendid than most of us, but came back to Highgrove, a place he knows and a place he loves and a place where he feels at rest and at one with nature and I'm sure at one with God. I digress. Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Thank you, Ian. Okay, Um, I think I've done everything now. (laughs) Oh, bless you guys. Um, Yes, it's um, an amazing message this morning that God's got for us. Um, There's so much in this passage, honestly, I I hope you haven't got a roast in. Um, Yeah, but I know I'm not going to keep you too long. Oh, welcome, brother. Um, Yeah, so we're we're looking at this passage, and um, I'm just going to break it down into sections and talk about each section a little bit at a time. Um, but just, just to put it in context here, it's in all three Gospels, okay? So you can, all three synoptic Gospels. So you can read it in Mark, in Matthew, and in Luke. And it's quite helpful to read all three because you get a little bit from each of them uh, that, that sort of comes into the mix. So Luke tells us this young man, this man is, is, is rich and he's a ruler. 
And Matthew tells us that he's young. So we have a young, a rich, young ruler. And uh, so that puts it all in context, really, doesn't it, a little bit? This is a very young person, but he's blessed with wealth and he's got some sort of position of authority. We don't know quite what that is yet. So I'm just going to break down for the first few verses um, to start us off. Now, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as I read this passage, those two words, good and do, jumped out at me. And really, they summarise the whole of this talk, this message this morning. What does it mean to be good? Is Jesus, is Jesus just good? Um, is he something else? Is he more than that? And what do we need to do? What's, what's our responsibility? What's, what's going on here? And um, first of all, I just want to sort of think about and contrast the rich young ruler's reaction to Jesus um, compared to some of the other people in the New Testament. So he's coming up to Jesus and saying, good teacher. And that's actually quite an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's not really that complimentary. I mean, it, he's not saying anything more than perhaps he's good at explaining things or he recognises that he does have good qualities in his life. We don't really know, but it's quite a bland term, good teacher. And we contrast that with, for instance, Peter's reaction when he first met Jesus it says he fell down on his knees and he said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. So he had immediately a sense that here was someone standing before him who was more than a good teacher. He called him Lord. And Nathaniel, you know, the guy that Jesus saw under the tree in John chapter one, he says to Jesus the first time he sees him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Amazing. You're the king of Israel. I mean, that's just stunning, isn't it? As a first revelation. Um, but, you know, Jesus is, you know, really, really gentle with this young man. And that's a theme I want you to take on board throughout this passage. There's a lot of humor in it. And I imagine Jesus has a little bit of a smile on his face when he says to the young man, you know, sort of, you know, why, do you, why are you calling me good? You know, what, what, think about this a minute. You know, there's no one good but God. And um, he, he's trying to get the young man to think a little bit more deeply. And Jesus is trying to get us to think a little bit more deeply about who he actually is. And this message is going out through the world for all time that Jesus isn't just good. He didn't just claim to be good. He took it a lot, lot further. There's loads of scriptures, but I've just picked two here. He said to me, he, he, said to all, he, he says to all of us, John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, fancy saying that, fancy claiming that if, um, you know, if you're looking at this person, Jesus, if you're looking at me, says Jesus, you have seen God. You've seen God in the flesh. I am God walking before you. Colossians tells us, doesn't it? He's the express image of the invisible God. It's everywhere in the Bible. Jesus isn't just good. He is God. Jesus also said, I and the Father are one in John 10. So I'm wondering, people in the room here, people listening online, who do you say Jesus is today? We all have to make that fundamental decision at some point in our lives and just look at this challenge is he just a good teacher or is he something more? Is he God come down to earth 
And um, I'm going to explain that a little bit further, a bit further on in the sermon, that I think he is God in the flesh, come to save and rescue us. The second point that comes out of these first few verses is the um, rich young ruler's rather amusing um, statement, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, He's breaking down the whole concept of getting into heaven with like a set of rules. What have I got to do to get to heaven? Um, This, of course, is the product of the Jewish religion. The Jewish mindset was very much rule-keeping. They had so many rules in the Old Testament that God had given, and then they, they added some extra ones just to make sure that they wouldn't break the first ones. So I think they had about 600 extra rules just to keep them sort of hemmed in and made sure they didn't break any of the rules. Um, But this young man must have had quite a high opinion of himself because in Matthew's account of this this passage, he he implies it's just one he needs to keep. He said, what good thing, singular, do I need to do to get into heaven? So he thinks he's like just one good work away. And this prompts, I think, quite an interesting response from Jesus. And um, it's rather lovely, actually, because Jesus doesn't get angry with him and he doesn't try to immediately point out his, his limitations and failures. He just gets him to dig a little deeper and get some perspective. So he says to him, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. So he's, he's taking him back to the Ten Commandments but he's taking him back, first of all, to the horizontal ones, the the, um, relational ones with other people. And the young man says, all these things I have kept from my youth. That's quite touching in a way, isn't it? Because here we have, I picture him as quite a, a serious and dedicated and intense young man who is wanting to do everything right. You might be that sort of character where you want to get everything right with God. And we're going to say more about that a bit later. So um, this guy is diligently trying to keep all the commandments. And in Mark's account, we have Jesus' reaction to this. It says he looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Even though, as we're going to see, he got it all wrong. (laughs) Jesus loved him, and that is a really important theme in this today's sermon. God loves you. God loves me. Okay, no matter, we might be trying our hardest to do things right, we might not be doing it right, who knows? But God loves you, and He sees your heart. Um, yeah, I just want to um, just dive, divert a little bit to something else because. Jesus has gone back to the law in order to help this young man discover where he's going wrong in his checklist to heaven. Jesus goes back to the law, and we can learn something from this. Um, Galatians is a whole book on um, the law. It's the whole book on Christians who have actually gone back to the law, which is actually another sermon. I was tempted to go down there, but I thought you wanted to get home today rather than tomorrow. Um, so I'm just going to have a little quick dip in and we can learn a little bit and then move on. 
But if you have a look at this the slide that's up there now, why was the law given? I think I've done this in the New Living to make it a little bit more fluent. It was given alongside the promise, that was the promise to Abraham, to show people their sins. Another verse says, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it, which is obviously what the young man thought. He could be made right with God by doing all these things. And finally, it says in in, in chapter 3, it says, the law was our schoolmaster or our tutor to bring us to Christ. So the purpose of the law, even the Old Testament law that the Jews were so fixated with, was not actually to qualify them to make them right with God. The law had two purposes, as I've discovered looking at the Bible. Number one, it was to limit sin. It it sort of kept them on the straight and narrow and kept the, the nation holy. But more than that, the, the point of the law is designed to show us how incapable we are of keeping it. Have you kept the Ten Commandments? I haven't. None of us can. And this young man didn't realize this at this point. So Jesus took him back to the law. And he said that he had kept all of these relational ones. We don't know whether that's true or not. When you read the New Testament, you know, committing adultery can be looking at a woman lustfully. To murder is the same as getting angry with someone. So I suspect that he hasn't even kept these commandments. But Jesus is trying to get him to think about um, his own limitations as a human being. Because at the moment, he thinks that he's got it all together. So he takes him back to the commandments and he says to him, Go and sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Because this is the one thing you lack. Because he'd asked for one thing, hadn't he? And Jesus told him, This was the one thing you lack. And of course, the young man did not want to do this. It's quite interesting. Jesus didn't make this a condition of becoming a disciple to any of the other people that he called. For instance, Matthew, the tax collector, was a very wealthy man. He gave a huge feast in Jesus's honor. But Jesus never said, forsake all that you have and follow me. No, Jesus knew that there was something um, where this young man had put his money in a very, very high place, a place where God should be. And so by not being able to give it all up, Jesus was showing him that actually he'd broken two of the commandments. Commandment number one, you'll have no other God before me. And he obviously had money as his God. And I suspect he's broken commandment number 10 as well. You shall not covet. The rich young ruler had an image of himself that he was basically quite a good person. And he compared himself with others. How tempting that is to do. And, you know, when he looked around in his society and his peers and his community, he probably looked quite good. But the law digs down deeper and exposes our basic human flawed heart that we can't do it all ourselves. And we're going to find out how we can get right with God in a moment. But I just want to say to you that I don't know if you talk to a lot of people about Jesus, but I tried to talk to quite a few people about Jesus. And I think I find this sort of rich young ruler type approach in many of my conversations. 
you know, you talk to someone and that you try to get them to recognize that they need to engage with Jesus and what he has done for them. But actually, all they can think about is the fact that actually they're quite a good person. They, you know, they look after their neighbor. They might take meals to sick people. They give to charity. They're not stealing. They're not killing. They're not going around committing adultery. So actually, they think that when they, if God is there and they get to heaven, they're going to stand before him. And, you know, like, a, like an exam where there's a pass mark, they think, well, you know, I'm probably in the upper section, so I'll probably get in. How wrong that is, that thinking. And I think it's based on a wrong concept of God. So I'm just going to give us a few scriptures today just to put our mind right about who God is, the characteristics of our God. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It's not impossible for us to lie. But with God, it's impossible. He cannot lie. Isn't that amazing? So when you read his word, it's truth. It's impossible for God to lie. You have a promise from God. Hold on to it. It's impossible for God to lie. 1 John 1.5, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Okay, he's not a mixture. Light in the Bible symbolizes everything that is good, life, healthy, whole, everything that is positive. And darkness and represents everything that is evil and undermining and destroying. So in God, there is no darkness at all. There's no evil in God. He's never motivated by selfishness, by cruelty. He is love, it says in 1 John 4, 8. Psalm 103, verse 8, he's merciful. Our God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy, God is basically kind. And 1 Timothy 6 tells us he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, which no man can enter. We can't go there. In our natural state, we can't go to heaven. All these perfections of our God disqualify us. We're like grubs on the ground by comparison. Hebrews 10, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our God is a consuming fire. So when we talk to people, we could use Jesus' technique a little bit. If we've got someone that's a bit rich, young, ruler-ish, and he, uh, he or she is thinking that they're basically quite a good person, we could use this technique of perhaps introducing the Ten Commandments and the holiness and the purity of God. I'm not saying we should ridicule people, uh, uh, bring them down and, and expose them in any, in any unkind way. But we can gently say, you know, it's impossible for me to keep the Ten Commandments. How about you? So what hope can we give them? What hope can we give the rich young ruler? What was Jesus trying to get to? Where was he trying to go with all of this? And I think, you know, I think probably most people in this room would agree with me. And as far as I can tell, Christianity is a unique religion. There are many religions for people to choose from on our planet. But Christianity has some unique claims. And one of them is that it doesn't put the burden of salvation on us. 
That is huge. You know, the religions that I know about require us people to do things all the time. They have to go places, they have to give things, they have to make pilgrimages or whatever it is. People constantly are living under a sense of condemnation, of not making the mark. They have to do something to be accepted by God. But God looked at our state. He looked at our imperfection. You know, the the law is one of those things that exposes us. Some of us think we might be better than others in getting to heaven. If you think about heaven as a place where you need a ladder to get to, well, your ladder may be longer than mine, but it's still not long enough. None of our ladders can ever be long enough. And God recognized that. So he came as a man. This is the amazing um, difference of Christianity. God came as a man and lived on this earth with us and experienced life with us. And yet he lived a perfect life. It said that he fulfilled the law. He was the only person who had ever lived it perfectly. The Bible says that Jesus is this man. He is the word of God that became flesh and lived among us. And he came to show us what God is like. And then strangely, at the height of his ministry, when he was just starting to get his message out, just starting to get crowds following him and lining the streets and wanting to engage with him, he then let himself be killed. Why did he do that? At that point, something amazing was taking place. The Bible tells us that God was doing something in 2 Corinthians 5. God was making Jesus sin. He who had no sin, just think of that, the perfection of God himself came down and took all of the things that we're ashamed of, all of the despicable deeds that have ever been done by man on this planet, all the lies, the adulteries, the murders, the thefts, And he put those horrific things on the spotless lamb of God, as he's called, Jesus. And and a divine exchange happened. He became sin. He took my sin. If you think of it as my Bible, here's me with my sin. Jesus took my sin, sinless, spotless lamb of God, took my sin. And I am now free. I am sinless. I have right standing with God. The Bible calls it righteousness. This scripture sums it up for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's even bigger than that. In Christ, God reconciles. That means to join back together the world to himself. God isn't angry and cross with the world anymore. The message to the shepherds at at, um, the birth of Jesus was goodwill towards men. God is not angry with the world. He has reconciled the whole world to himself. Even the horrendous deeds from, you know, despots and tyrants, names we could think of. Even those people, God has reconciled potentially to himself. We will see we need a personal response here in a minute. But he's not counting their trespasses against them. And so as Christians, we go out into the world and we implore people. We're ambassadors for God. Please, please listen to Jesus. Take hold of this life, this free gift, this cleansing that he offers you. 
If, as you've been listening to me today, either in the room or online, you just want to do that right now, that you want to engage with Jesus. You want to engage with the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, your sins. Then I invite you to just pray this prayer with me now. Jesus, I believe that on the cross you took my sin and died the death that I should have died. I believe you rose from the dead and that my sins are now forgiven. Please come into my life, Lord and Saviour, and help me live my life through the help of your indwelling Holy Spirit. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today and you're in the room, please come and share it with one of us. Um, it's always good to tell someone. There's real power in confessing that you've made that decision to become a Christian. And if you're listening online, please contact us at thehope.church.org. It's up on the screen there. Just write to us and, you know, we'd love to send you some materials. Okay, we're going to go back to the rich young ruler then. Because when he heard that he had to sell everything, it says he became very sorrowful because he was exceedingly rich. And Jesus goes on, I think, with humour to say how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples go on to say, well, who can be saved then? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You see, um, the, the Jews of that time thought that if you were rich, then you were righteous because God had blessed you. They equated riches with um, like the seal of approval of God. It's, it's, it's full of, the Old Testament is, is full of these scriptures where we see that Job, even after what had happened to him, he was blessed multiple, multiple times, much more than all he lost. Abraham was one of the richest people on earth at the time of his, his sojourning here. He was generous and he was giving all the time. He had cattle. He had so much. Um, Lot and him had to even separate, didn't they? Because there was t- they had too many cattle for the land that, to support both, both sets of herds. Solomon was the wealthiest man. And when we read of um, Deuteronomy 28, of the blessings and curses, that God wants to bless his people. But the Jews had taken that one step further and they, they, they received the blessing of God as a sign of approval, as a sign of their righteousness. And um, Jesus was trying to get to the bottom of this, that just because you're blessed, that doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're accepted with God. God just wants to bless you. In Matthew's account, um, it brings out here that it's those who trust in riches that have trouble entering the kingdom of God. And what I think it's saying is it's those who trust in riches are trusting in this seal of approval that was in this Jewish mindset, that because they were rich, they thought they were righteous, therefore they were trusting their riches as sort of like a stamp of approval. And what Jesus is saying here, not that rich people can't get to heaven, that can't be true, because as the disciples responded, well, who can, get, who can go then? <laughs> because to, 
you know, compared to somebody else, we're all rich, aren't we? There's grades of riches, but, you know, if you've got all that you need, you are rich compared to somebody else. So it can't be as simple as that. And um, Matthew's account, as I said, says that those who trust in riches, so in some way they're putting their faith in something else, they're not putting their faith in Jesus. So... What we've had so far is we've had this, this understanding that nothing we do can qualify us for heaven. Okay, this, Christianity isn't a religious system like the other religions that I know of, where you have to do something. You know, we're not on a treadmill of activity to please God. You know, if you are on that treadmill, you can be on it even as a Christian. You know, Galatians, as I say, is a book written to Christians who had forgotten that they were saved by grace and were going back to do the law, the Jewish law in their case. But we can have our own treadmills of activity where we don't feel that we're quite approved by God. And, that, and we're trying to mix the grace of the gospel with our own driving works. How do I know about this? I've been there. I've done it. I felt constant compulsion to try to please God. And it's, it's, it's not what God wants. God loves us and accepts us through Jesus. It's his work on the cross. It's the way we are saved. And um, we need to abandon all self-effort and self-righteousness for our salvation. That's the important point. Jesus received us as we are. You know, if, if, if I didn't do anything else for the kingdom of God forevermore, I would still be welcomed in. It's not what I do that saves me. It's Jesus who saves me. But <laughs> there's another half to this passage today, and it's actually quite beautiful the way the two things work together. Because the disciples' reaction, I think, is really quite interesting, and it shows the, the place of what we do do as Christians in its right context. Peter says to Jesus, always oh, the direct one, um, see, uh, we've left all to follow you, Lord. <laughs> What's in it for us? <laughs> um, he says, you know, we've left all to follow you. So, assuredly, I say to you, says Jesus, no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come. And we could, we could be a bit like Peter, couldn't we, and think, well, if it's all grace, then what is the point of coming to church? What's the point of getting here at half past eight and setting up all the chairs and then putting them all the way at the end? What's the point of being a pastor and a pastor's wife, or two pastors, sorry, and you know, spending that, having the burden of prayer for all the church? And what's the point of giving stuff away? What's the point of doing all that? I'm not saved by that anyway. I'm only saved because of Jesus. Nothing I do is going to make a difference to my salvation. That is the gospel of grace. And if it's not preached that strongly, it's not being preached correctly. Paul preached that gospel and he was accused of, um, you know, getting it wrong. People said to him, but he said in, um, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, people are slanderously saying of me that I say we should do evil so that good would come. In other words, 
people were misinterpreting, misunderstanding the gospel. It was preached so strongly against the Jewish religion, which was a do religion, that no, it's by grace. You're saved by grace. And Peter had this message quite clear, and he wanted Jesus to clarify it. And this is where the balance comes in to this gospel message. Because Romans 6, if we read it, goes to ex- explains to us that when we become Christians, our old man dies. That sin nature that ruled us, controlled us, compelled us to sin, if we tried not to sin, that sin nature still was there driving us. That man dies. This is the power of the gospel. And baptism is like enacting that spiritual event that has happened. I don't know if some of you have been dunked baptised, but I was baptised as an adult, and we went to the sea and did it, and it was great. And I wanted, I'd understood this, and I said, hold me down. <laughs> I want to feel I've died. <laughs> so they did. <laughs> oh, not that long. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I like water, but it's all right. (laughs) Yeah, but the point is, when we go into the waters of baptism and we go underneath, it is good to take time to think, I am dying spiritually. My old man is dying, and I'm being raised to new life. And that new life is the resurrection life that God gives us by his spirit. And that new life means that the old man is dead. We don't have to sin anymore. And the outworking of that too is that we are God's body now on the earth. Jesus isn't here anymore, but we all are. And we're his hands and we're his legs and we're his wallet and we're his mouth. And he wants us not to get to heaven, not to be motivated by that, to please him, not to feel we need to do that, but just out of love and compassion for people that we are moved to minister, to give, to be Jesus to other people. And this will be rewarded. In heaven, God is incredibly fair, and we will be, Jesus says, we're actually rewarded in this life as well, Um, but we will be rewarded in heaven. There will be rewards for those who have done amazing things through the love of Jesus. Now, um, This is summed up, just, I'm nearly finished, by the way, so I think you will get home to tea. Um, This is summed up in Ephesians 2, very, very succinctly, so I'll just quickly go through it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So this scripture sums up the whole of this message, really. We're saved by grace, but then there are works for us to do. And I think, you know, one thing to watch is we don't compare one with another. Don't, it says in in Romans 14, you know, don't judge another man's servant to his own servant, to his own master, he will stand or fall. You know, God is able to make us stand. If someone looks at our lives and thinks, you're not doing very much for God, that's their problem, okay? We, all we have to do is listen to what God is saying for us to do. You know, we can't all be missionaries, okay? There would be no money to support them. So some of us are called into secular work or to create companies, to create wealth, to give jobs to other people. And some people are called to the mission field. And they, re- you know, they can receive the, 
the money from other people to support their work. The two work together. So we just have to look at the big picture. Find our, I always think of it as a tapestry. The body of Christ is like a tapestry. And we're all a thread. And we're making a beautiful picture. We're serving other people because we love God. So there are, there's a whole sermon there, as you might imagine, <laughs> looking at scriptural rewards. And I've put some further study um, references on the bottom there if you want to look at it um, yourself later. So just to conclude, this Rich Young Ruler is an amazing passage. It like gives the whole gospel in one go. It tells us we can't earn our way to heaven, that the keeping of the law and that was only to show us how incapable we are of keeping it. To, us, to cling tenaciously to Jesus and what he has done with no merit and no, um, we don't bring anything to the table. It's Jesus and Jesus alone is why we are saved. But then the outworking of that in our hearts is that um, we go out in love and service as his body here on earth to just be him to people. And I just want to encourage you all with the last scripture. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and love that you have shown him in serving the saints, as you still do, Hebrews 6.10. So be blessed, brothers and sisters. Um, Thank you for listening so carefully to me. Sorry it was a bit long today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let's just pray. Father God, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that, you know, what we couldn't do, he came and did. He came and died for us. He took our sin. He took everything that was a barrier to coming into that glorious throne room one day and standing before you, something we could never have ever achieved through our own effort and merit. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done it for us. You've taken our sin. You've made the way clear again. You've taken the blockage out the way. And we come to you in simple faith and receive that truth. Help us, Lord, to connect with you in a personal way and and, and know what are the good works, the gracious works, the works prompted by love and our our just joy of, of your salvation that you want us to get engaged in to bring your light and love to a dying world. Amen.